1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, today, we will be talking with um, uh, Professor Simon O'Mara, who is a lecturer in the history of architecture and archaeology at the um, um, School of Oriental and, and African Studies at the, uh, SOAS at the University of London. Uh, we will be Talking with him about his 2020 book, The Kaaba Orientations Readings in Islamic Ancient House, uh, published by Edinburgh University Press. Um, Professor Simon Omera has a PhD in art history from the University of Leeds. Uh, he works mostly on the um, pre modern visual and material culture of Islamic North Africa, and we are very much uh, happy and honored to. Be talking with uh, with him today. Uh, welcome Simon. Thank you Miguel, thank you very much. Uh, thank you
0: for such a nice introduction and thank you for above all for inviting me to join you on New Books Network. It's a network that I've availed myself of a number of recordings in the past and although it sounds uh, overdone, it is an honor to be here. So thank you again.
1: Thank you. Um, so we usually start by asking our guests if they could tell us something about what led them to the point where they're writing this book, about something about their intellectual background or academic background or anything, or even your life background, any anything that you feel might explain and and ground the 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 person whose whose book we're going to be talking about, could you please tell us something? Yes, of course, with pleasure. And in fact, by doing so, it would allow me
0: just to modify one aspect of your introduction for me. I don't, in fact, have a PhD in art history, in Islamic art history. I, I, I got my PhD at the University of Leeds in the north of England, but I did it in Islamic studies. And the fact that I did it in Islamic studies is really um, perhaps the most... Relevant uh, aspect of, of how I've made my career in the fields of Islamic art history, and that is to say that I did art history as an MA student at the University of Chicago, um, and I started learning Arabic there. And um, I was very fortunate to um, have professors and teachers who were encouraging me. And after after doing that, I I, I went I went to live in Morocco f- for a few years, and when I was in Morocco, I, I felt that. I needed to know more about the Islamic side of things. I felt that if I were to go, if I were to return to Chicago to do the PhD aspect of the program, which I was on, I would not necessarily be engaging with uh, readings and and, and teachings to do with the Islam side of things. And it was really that that I was interested in. I was interested in the Islam Of Islamic art history. I wanted to know more and more and more about that. So that's why I didn't return to Chicago, but went to the University of Leeds to the the, uh, Middle Eastern Studies Department. I didn't go to the Art History Department, which at Leeds is very famous, Um, but I went to the uh, Middle Eastern Studies Department and got my PhD in Islamic Studies, because I wanted to devote myself to knowing more about Islam. And it's really from there that I've uh, constantly kept uh, my pursuit within Islamic art history as someone who uh, engages uh, above all in thinking about how the discourses of Islam help can help us see and understand uh, the the objects that have been produced the material culture that's been produced within Islamic cultures Uh, and I found that uh, my background in Islamic studies has been very helpful in uh, trying to look at Islamic art from, if you like, more more from within the culture than... So, so more from an emic perspective than an itic perspective, I suppose we'd say, that more from uh, within the cultural terms in which it was produced rather than within the academic terms which Islamic art history, for the most part, uh, operates with. Um, and I, that so... Uh, that's really my trajectory. It has remained my trajectory. And I came to write this book on the Kaaba because, well, I, it, I found that it simply hadn't been covered. Um, and I couldn't understand this. I couldn't understand how a, how the building that um, probably, well, most, most Muslims would probably say is the most important building in the Islamic world. I was at a loss to understand how this building didn't have much coverage in Islamic art history. A few articles had been written about it, um, but from the architectural aspect of Islamic art history, it, it really was not covered at all. And if one measures the importance of monuments by how many monographs have been written about them, then you know, I found it staggering that the Kaaba had not a single monograph in any European language about it, whereas, for example, if you look at the Dome of the Rock, um, it has numerous monographs written uh, about it. Uh, uh, the the admired Mosque of Damascus is not short of monographs, but the Kaaba had nothing, um, and you know, I, I I felt that this was something that a lacuna that needed addressing, and I felt that my background in Islamic studies might allow me to uh, engage with it in uh, in 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 ways that uh, uh, might reveal interesting insights about it so my book is very much a book that looks at the kaaba from the perspective of uh, muslims it is you know how have Muslims thought about it? How have they written about it? How have they represented it? How have they dreamt about it? How have they written poetry about it? It is. Um, I, I wanted to know how this building had been used, or and still is used, uh, from the beginning of the Islamic period, or at least the period when we can start getting his- We start having uh, textual evidence and other uh, uh, other evidence that we can refer to up till. Um, by and large, the 18th century, I don't really go into modernity because it, it's a very, well, I, you know, it's, I've only, I, I only had 90,000 words and modernity, I felt, was <laughs> a step too far.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, apologies for uh, for uh, the for the mistake earlier. Um, uh, so we can, um, you, you've, you've, you've started to, to enter in the topic of the book itself, which is, as you said, the uh, the Kaaba, the, which is the the central granite cuboid structure at the center of the Grand Mosque in uh, in uh, in Mecca. And I, before we um, before we we delve into the uh, the six chapters of your book, I just wanted to um, to to say and to note and to congratulate you on really the uh, how wonderful the book is uh, in all respects uh, it is a uh, really a, a fantastic work of scholarship a fantastic work of publishing it is a beautiful beautifully organized beautifully written book congratulations to you from congratulations to edinburgh university press as well um and to your editors um it's it was a joy to read and it will be a joy to to talk to you about it um, um you you've divided your your book in uh, in six chapters as you were saying each of them looking at different ways that um that the kaaba was was understood or is understood um the first one is you call it the kaaba as as qibla can you tell us something more about that maybe also even explaining what uh, what qibla means to listeners who might not be un- who might not be familiar with it
0: of course i'm uh, happy to do so and um... Before I do so, just thank you for your lovely words. It's very, one can never hear hear enough nice words about um, something that one's done um, at whatever stage one is in one's academic career. Anyway, so thank you very much. I'm glad. I'm very glad to hear your uh, positive appreciation of the book. In terms of the Qibla in the first chapter, well, first of all, the Qibla then, for those who don't know, is the sacred direction in Islam. So it's the direction which um, many of the ritual actions that are prescribed for religious life, uh, for Muslims in, in, in Islam, they have to be directed towards the Kaaba in Mecca. So, for example, daily prayer, salat has to be uh, you have to be oriented in the direction of the Kaaba for your prayer to be accepted by God of course if you accidentally if, if you don't know the direction of Kaaba and you, you find yourself later that you you were pointing in the wrong direction that doesn't matter but you need to make the effort to try and locate uh, the Kaaba, um, and then direct your prayers in that direction. And there are other ritual actions which are also meant to be done facing the Kaaba. And lastly, when a Muslim dies, they are buried with their face uh, in the direction of the Kaaba. And that direction is called the Qibla, and it's you could we could think of it simply as sacred direction. Um, now, I started with my first chapter, and it's called the Kaaba, as Qibla, as you say, because my 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 guiding um, uh, what, what I was trying what I was trying to how I or how I worked my way through these different chapters was I was trying to think how does the Kaaba work in Islamic culture? How has it worked in the past? And to some extent, how is it still working today? I was interesting to, interested to know its, its effects, what it was, what it had made possible within Islamic culture. So I wanted to know, in a sense, how it was being used and um, how it was uh, working within the culture. And I thought that the Qibla was a good place to start because uh, without the Kaaba, there wouldn't be a Qibla, so to speak. It would be, there might be a Qibla elsewhere, as we know that the, prior to the Kaaba being the Qibla of Islam, we know that Jerusalem was the Qibla of Islam, for example. But um, the Qibla is, if you like, the, the, uh, the way that most Muslims in their daily life daily interact with the Kaaba because they do their ritual prayer in the direction of it. So it seemed like a good place to start to think about, uh, quote-unquote, the work of the Kaaba in daily life. Because that's what I was interested in. I want to know how it was working, what it was doing within Islamic culture. So I chose the Qibla to start off with because I felt that most that would be the usage that um, would affect, would involve most Muslims, even if they didn't, even if they'd never seen the Kaaba, when they orient themselves towards it in prayer, they are using it uh, and the Kaaba is working on their in, in in on their behalfs effectively because they the kaaba provides the focal point of their prayers it's a kind of and then via the kaaba the um the prayer is channeled up to to god because the kaaba is god's house so you direct your prayer in the with a horizontal vector and uh because it's god's house there is a vertical vector which we don't see that takes the prayer one hopes to heaven uh, and, 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 and God. So that was how I chose it. Um, and, you know, I, I, was, I was astonished. I had an inkling about this, but I've always been interested in, in the fact that early in the history of Islamic urbanism, in fact, very early in the history of Islamic urbanism, cities, or what we call garrison cities, the amsar, um, so these uh, these cities that were built uh, for, for the conquest of Iraq, the conquest of Iran uh, the conquest of egypt, these garrison cities that were built after the death of the prophet um, when these when the military, when the when, when the armies of Islam spread out to take the word of Islam with them, I was struck that a number of these garrison towns had a Qibla orientation uh, either at their very center or the entirety of their um, or, or, or the entirety of of the city itself and I was and I was struck by this: that, that why would you know, why would why would armies, you know, we expect them to be kind of by definition they are going to be um, engaging in warfare, and they're going to be you know these are violence is going to be perpetuated by them. Why would they bother with um, you know such a thing as making sure their city is oriented in the direction of the Kaaba? And, and so that thinking about um, and looking into. The organization of early Islamic urban space uh, as I found uh, more than a handful of uh, early cities, not just the amsar, not just the garrison towns, but even but also later cities, had a, a quite noticeable Kaaba uh, orientation, a quite a noticeable Qibla orientation to them, in that either they were oriented at the center towards the Kaaba and the rest of the city was too, too, too sprawling to have that orientation, or indeed some actually had uh, a Kaaba slash Qibla direction throughout them. You know? And I've, I, I've, I've always found that, and I still find that, to be astonishing, um, that, that people would go to such effort to make sure that um, their urban life, which we might normally think of as being secular, Actually, has a kind of religious element to it, even though they're not praying in mosques. For example, they just they just kind of. But the city itself has been laid out with this
1: Qibla in mind. Um, Thank you. Uh, this is this is uh, fascinating on on many levels, and very much especially given your uh, um, your argument and I think very strong argument, as as you said for the. Uh, very early use of the uh, of the Qibla um throughout the uh, the nascent Islamic world at that time um you the the second chapter of of course it necessarily connects but it's a different angle looking of looking at the at the, at the Kaaba uh, you you name it uh, as as a novel as a navel of the world uh, and it is largely uh cosmological exploration of the um, of the place of the Kaaba in the world, and could you could you tell us how that follows from the from the from that idea of orientation? How that differs, or just uh, something about that?
0: Well, it's it's a it's two different sets of, of of material, shall we? So two different sets of. Um, of literature that I was looking at. In the first one to do with the Qibla, for the most part, I was looking at archaeological records and, and and early, and very, and the earliest Islamic histories that we, that, that we have. Um, so I was, that was a very textual, um, study. In the, in the, in the second one, the, in many ways, the prime document were, were, were maps that had been made. So a, a later period, but, maps that uh, were cosmological in their uh, in, in their outlook so these were uh, th- these were maps that sh- that were put together by cosmographers in the sort of 13th 14th century maybe based on earlier cosmographies but they placed the Kaaba right at the center of the world which is reproduced in these
1: maps and so I may I'm- just slightly interrupt just yeah. to say that the book is uh, uh, lavish reproductions of plates with those maps and it they were really a, a wonderful treasure. Please continue. I'm sorry.
0: Thank you. Yes, and th- th- as you say, the editorial team have done a great job on in the reproductions. Um, the so I was, you know, I, w- I was fascinated by this, this this anchoring of the Kaaba right at the centre of these representations of the world. After all, these so these are maps put together by cosmographers who are who are claiming to represent the world. Um, Including the Islamic world within it. And uh, there was the Kaaba right at the center. I then uh, looked at, uh, uh, I've then then found a parallel with that with early traditions. Uh, They're not hadith, they don't go back to the Prophet, but they're very early traditions um, that we can take back to at least the 9th century that talk of the Kaaba being. The origin point of the world, and that's a kind of that would that parallels very nicely with these uh, maps, these cosmographies, these representations of cosmographies, because in these in these maps, uh, very much one gets the sense that the world is uncoiling from the Kaaba, as if it were being born from there, as if it were a matrix of sorts, and that's uh, and the idea of the Kaaba as being the birthing site of the world is precisely what we find in these ninth century traditions that. Um, say very carefully, very deliberately, that the world was spread out uh, from underneath the Kaaba, and I, I, you know, I found the image of of being birthed from underneath to be exactly that which one would expect. In this period, when it comes to thinking about birthing, you know, in in, in this period, you were birthed vertically. You know, a woman stood, and the child came out um, from underneath her. So there was there's very much a sense. I I found I I certainly find it difficult not to see in these traditions some kind of birthing uh, imagery at play, and I found that also reflected in these uh, representations of the world in which the Kaaba was dead center. And it, 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 it relates to the first chapter because the first chapter is about the organization of, um, of space. But I was talking about urban space. The second chapter is about the organization of world space. So, you know, in the first chapter, I was looking at how urban sites had been oriented towards the Kaaba, either just at the very center or in, in, it, in, in an urban site totality. And in the second chapter, I was looking at how the world was said to be oriented to the Kaaba. So both link, uh, both chapters tie to each other, but one was focused on cities, whereas the second one is, quote unquote, focused on the world because the Kaaba is said to have birthed the world and to orient the world as a whole. Everything is 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 uh, oriented towards it in these traditions and in these uh, in these. Uh, uh, these maps, these mappa mundi, these world maps.
1: Thank you. Um, that's the the idea of a space and a location and a building, a building that exists in a location which is the axis of the world. It brings us to your third chapter, uh, which you told the, which you named the Kaaba as a substructure, which uh it, approaches that problem from the perspective of the event of what happens to the space what's the relationship between between the space itself and the building which is in it and specifically what happens when the building is destroyed um i found it i mean the the entire book is fascinating this one was particularly touching um could you make some connections concerning concerning what you meant by substructure and the uh and um, and all of this. Yes,
0: of course. Um, the, the so the third chapter develops, shall we say, what what was put forward in the second chapter. That in the second chapter, the Kaaba is the center of the world. It's the it's the navel, and it also seems to have birthed the world. So it's both a navel and a matrix. And then I wondered, what, and it's a pivot as sort. It's the pivot of the universe. And in some representations, it's the pivot of the whole universe. Uh, so in Chapter 2, there is a representation of the universe as a whole in which the Kaaba is dead center and seems to be birthing the whole universe. And certainly the universe seems to pivot on this um, as you say, the representations are very good in this book. Um, I'm very glad that they've, they've done so well. They've been done so well. Anyway, my so the third chapter is an inquiry to do with the fact that, well, if it is the pivot of the world, if it's the navel and the axis mundi, we know that the Kaaba has been, you know, we know that even on a conservative reckoning, by a conservative reckoning, the Kaaba that stands today in Mecca is the 11th Reconstruction of it, and I think that's a very conservative reckoning. So it's a reckoning by a Saudi scholar. I suspect that the 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 number of reconstructions the Kaaba has endured is uh, much closer to twenty, I would guess. Um, Anyway, the point is that this the Kaaba has been destroyed on a number of occasions, um, mostly by flooding, sometimes by fire, but also by warfare, Uh, and it gets completely destroyed. Um, You know. and I, I asked myself, well, hang on, if, if the Kaaba is the pivot of the world, what happens if that pivot gets smashed? Wouldn't that place, wouldn't that leave the world uh, off axis and kind of spinning un- uncontrollably? So that led me into a kind of inquiry into thinking, well, perhaps it's not the Kaaba that stands on the surface that we, that we need to worry about. But maybe there's something about its foundations that is more important. So not necessarily the superstructure of the Kaaba, but its substructure, the the foundations. And and we know that those foundations are important because one of the few places where the Kaaba is spoken of in the Quran is when Abraham raises the foundations. Um, and so, so we get this word kawa'id and uh, we know that these foundations are important because the quran tells us how abraham raises with Ishmael, raises the foundations so i so the third chapter is looking at the foundations of the kaaba what we can what we know about them uh, and and what you know what what those foundations um tell us about what ultimately matters about the kaaba and in my my conclusion is that ultimately it's it's those foundations that uh, have never been destroyed uh, they have always remained consistent they've never at least according to uh, the at least according to representations of the cabal both textual and pictorial uh, those f- foundations the substructure has never been destroyed unlike the superstructure and that is quite different to say uh, the temple in jerusalem where we get in lamentations we're told that the fire reaches down and destroys even the foundations and i think that's you know people often say oh the cab is just some some borrowing of 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 the temple in jerusalem it's a kind of copy of it i'm not i'm not arguing with that whole thing that's that's a debate that needs to be looked at very carefully but certainly it's one thing that it does not borrow from the temple is the idea that the foundations are destroyed Jeremiah tells us the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed until it's right until right down to its foundations that is not what happens at the Kaaba it's uh, uh, and, and in those in that regard it's quite
1: different i think to uh, the temple in Jerusalem thank you uh, the fourth chapter i read it as a a different way of uh, of looking at the uh, at the space of the Kaaba as it relates to a building which is there, which is what we call the Kaaba. You were just now talking about how that can be looked at in a different way, through an axis, through a substruction, a superstructure. The um, in the fourth, you you look at you, which is called the Kaaba as as beloved. Um, you look at personal reactions, sometimes of ecstatic, sometimes even of erotic imagery that do, that people used and experienced when in contact with that space um, you also made a connection at one point about how that was sometimes used as a way of dealing with um dealing with the trauma of destruction um, could you what does that mean for the Kaaba to be as as a beloved in this context uh,
0: yes well as you say there is a kind of in some sense there's a a a not a sea change, but there's a change between chapters one to three and then four onwards in in chapter four I look not so much at how it's been represented in in sort of in document historical documents but in terms of how people have written histories of it but I look at how it's actually used physically how you know, I look at its main usage um, during pilgrimage season, and not just the Hajj, but also the lesser pilgrimage, the Umrah, I look at the fact that, um, so the focus of it, of chapter four, is the circumambulation ritual, the Tawaf of the Kaaba. And that's that's its main usage. Remember, this book is about how the Kaaba ha- has been used and is used by Muslims. Um, so um, it's used as a uh, as a sacred direction. So that's the Qibar and Salat. Um, And in chapter four, it's used extensively as the um, object, as as used as God's house around which pilgrims circumambulate seven times every time they perform the Tawaf uh, or circumambulation ritual. Now, that um, Tawaf, uh, I I was trying to dig out experiences of that Tawaf. I was trying to get to how people have experienced this Tawaf, what, what their experiences could tell us about the Kaaba in the hope that somehow there would be some kind of connection between their experiences which might help us shed light on how the Kaaba was understood and is understood by by Muslims. There isn't much literature, um, uh, in fact there's very little literature on this experiential aspect of the Kaaba prior to, shall we say, the 19th century, except for within what you call ecstatic writings, Sufism and um so the literature that I look at in in Chapter Four is extensively comprises Sufi literature because they have spoken of what they experienced as they circumambulated the house of God, and for me that was a you know gave me it gave me a there's very little when we deal with pre modern Islamic architecture uh, there's we don 't really have many Sources that can tell us how it was experienced. So, you know, I, I, although I know and uh, and expect to be told, oh, Simon, you've put too much emphasis on Sufism. Partly, I say yes, that's true, but that's because we don't have many other sources for experiential accounts of architecture, not for the pre, not for pre-modernity, but also let's. Be careful before we start dividing Islam into uh, I don't know Sufism and non-Sufism, Salafi and, uh, and and orthodoxy, and all these divisions that we we use today. I, mean, I think in, the scholarship increasingly is coming out in the direction that Sufism is is really a part and parcel of Islam. And and so yes, it's true that I talk about I use Sufi documentation in this chapter. And you can hear that I'm being slightly defensive about it already. Um, But uh, I would say, and others have said it better before me, that Sufism is not some kind of uh, add-on to Islam. It's part and parcel of Islam. Uh, And uh, so I shift into looking at Sufi literature a lot. Uh, And I specifically focus on the longest account of the Tawaf that I'm aware of, which is a very long discussion of experiencing the Kaaba by the the Andalusian um, uh, mystic. He wasn't a Sufi, or at least he never identified as a Sufi. Uh, Ibn Arabi um, dies in the 13th century. And he wrote uh, an extensive uh, account of his two or three uh, uh, encounters with, with the Kaaba where mystical events happened to him. And so I use that as the basis for my engagement with the Kaaba as the beloved, uh, which uh, I argue the, um, the pilgrim, specifically the Sufi pilgrim, is trying to bond with. Referring to the Kaaba as beloved is not specifically a Sufi uh, trope, uh, you can refer to the Kaaba as beloved without being a Sufi, um, but it is particularly common in Sufism to refer to the House of God as the Beloved. And the argument I make in this chapter is that the tawaf effectuates a bonding of it, almost like a, uh, almost almost like the um, the screw, almost like the thread of a screw. When you're circling, it's almost like you're bond, it's almost like the, you're you're threading yourself into the wall of the Kaaba, you're threading yourself around it, you're bonding yourself to it um, through the action of circling. Um, And that's the conclusion that I reach about what Tawaf is doing, uh, at least within a Sufi context, um, based upon uh, this long uh, experiential account by Ibn Arabi, but it's not, and I should add, it's not just based on Ibn Arabi. I try to place Ibn Arabi's experiential account of the tawaf in the context of other Sufis' accounts in order to show, again, defensively, uh, that Ibn Arabi is not some outlier in, in in the mystical literature. That he was a part and parcel of. He was writing his experiential accounts are longer than other people's, but are not necessarily different in terms of content. Um, uh, and that's so. So, I do try to anchor Ibn Arabi into a, into a wider Sufi context. Um, in order, to, but and you can hear it in my defensiveness now, in order to try and ward off the, the, the what I know is going to be said. Oh, Simon, so mean, we can dismiss chapter four because it just refers to uh that that heretical uh Ibn Arabi who people dismiss as as being a Muslim anyway. Uh, and that simply so, isn't the case.
1: It, yes, uh, I. You you bring Ibn Arabi in connection with a number of other of other of other reports. That's that was very much very much clear. I did not get the feeling that that was a a, a one man um a a, a one man event in the relation of the Kaaba as a in that in the perfect um, yes uh, and you you I found it curious because the way you were talking now reflected also. The, the naming of the chapters from the from one to th- from one to four you have the Kaaba as kibla the Kaaba's as the kaaba's as uh, substructure the Kaaba as beloved and uh, in the fifth you call it the house as holder and in your in the, right now you are also switching to the use of house is this something that you you feel has significance or uh, is the ancient house al betul atik as um, uh, Is this something that that there is to the name, or is it different ways of referring it,
0: it's it's the, uh, the bait is the most common way of referring to the Kaaba in the Quran, which of course has led scholars rightly to question whether it's the, whether the, the, the whether the signified is the Kaaba in Mecca or just some other temple somewhere else. Uh, the Kaaba is mentioned, um, but it's only it's mentioned very infrequently. Uh, you forgive me, I can't remember. I think it's twice it's mentioned by name in the Quran, um, but the, 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 the bait is the more common word bayt uh, al and various uh, various forms of al-bait uh, very qualifications of it is more common do i think that there's a distinction between the two in, in no the reason i move to discussing in chapter 5 i start the title i start my chapters not with the word the kaaba but with the house is because in chapters 5 and 6 i'm looking at another usage of the kaaba which is uh, what as as, as architecture, it holds. Architecture is set, its prime function of architecture is to house, is to house and contain and give shelter. So I, 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 moved the title in chapters five and six to house, not the Kaaba, in order to, to kind of prepare the reader to, 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 to thinking about housing and what, and how the Kaaba houses and if, or, or if it houses. So that's why I shift to a different usage, it is it ref, it's reflected in the Quran. It's reflected in the literature. We, you know, people can be talking about the Kaaba in one breath and then the house in another. I don't think in that shifting that anything significant is taking place. I think it's just two. They're just two ways of referring to the same building. I don't think it's a reflective of some deeper significance. Um, for me, in chapter five and six, it's merely to prepare the reader for a topic. That uh, chapters five and six both speak to, which is what is the Kaaba doing in its form as architecture? If we expect architecture to house and hold, give shelter, does the Kaaba do that? And that was prompted, and that question has been prompted, or or, uh, really has been prompted by two or three occasions when I've spoken about the Kaaba in lectures as I was. You know, I've been researching this for quite a long time. In fact, for a very long time, too long. Um, although one needs to do a long research, I think, on a building is important to this. But I started researching it in 2010. And I uh, I was lucky enough to be in Florence at, on a scholarship there at the Kunsthistorische Institute. And I gave a lecture about some of my research, and I was astonished to find um one of the big cheeses, who was an invited guest, not part of the institute, saying at the end of it, saying, "Yes, but the Kaaba doesn't count as architecture," you know, and that has that has been repeated to me at two other lectures since. A kind of an understand somehow the Kaaba is not architecture. I said sub- foolishly on on these three occasions, I have never had the wit to say, "What do you mean?" I've kind of just sort of said, I've just, I've just ended up saying, yes, of course it is. But I should have put the question back to the questioner. But I suspect what, what underlies their uh, accusation is that we tend to think of architecture as having elaborate ornamentation, um, uh, uh, having a program of ornamentation, uh, uh, some kind of iconographic program. And the Kaaba, as we all know, is you know, almost bereft of ornamentation. It has a door uh, it has some lines of- of, of uh terraz bands on it, but it is you know, it doesn't it's almost like a shed if you like and and probably we would hesitate to call a shed architecture or at least high minded as our historians would probably hesitate to call a shed architecture personally a shed is architecture in my view um and i'm not saying the Cabot is a shed i hasten i hasten to add but uh, so i, I I felt it very important to address in chapters 5 and 6 the fact that the Kaaba is architecture um, and the fact that it's doing what architecture does, which is holding. What it holds is another matter entirely, and that's what I try and pursue in chapter 5 specifically. And then in chapter 6, I look at you know, how how that holding function is signified by the kiswa or the black robe that covers the Kaaba, but both five and six address the holding nature of the Kaaba. And that's why I use the word house in the, in, in the chapter. Sorry, that's a long answer to your uh, pertinent question.
1: It, is, uh, it was a, a, a wonderful answer. Um, the, the, uh, the question of what constitutes architecture is, of course, a, a, a long one, but you do go... To length in the book to explain how the the very structure of the Kaaba is extensively debated and described. The walls, this the the the, the divisions, the the sides, the corners, the height, the depths. That's something that um, uh, Muslim writers described and engage with profoundly in all sorts of. In all sorts of ways that are many of which you, you engage in in the in the in the book here. So that question it, 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 it does sound very strange after having read your book. Um, the, the, how could this not be architecture? But yes, um, but coming back to your uh, to your fifth uh, chapter, the house as a holder, as you were, as we were explaining one of the functions of the of a house. Or other building of how specifically it is to hold, so what does the Kaaba hold well yeah, exactly uh, well I mean it, it, in my
0: view it holds the the, the mystery it, it holds it holds nothing where nothing should be understood as this mystical number non not slash not number i mean what is what is the number zero and and uh, and there's so towards the end of that chapter I, I do go out on a limb and interpret. What it the emptiness of the Quran in t- sorry the emptiness of the Kaaba in terms of zero right I talk about the entry of, of zero into um, the Arabian Peninsula in the seventh century I talk about the history of zero but uh, again I should add that that is uh, you know there are some places in the in in the in the in the book where I do give my personal interpretation and that's definitely one of the places where I go out on a limb because I have not found in the literature and um, in my readings from emic sources, from, from from within Muslim literature, I have not found the Kaaba being spoken of as a holder of the number zero, or, or, or nothingness, holding nothing. Um, uh, and so I keep that interpretation towards the end of the chapter, but But prior to that, I I stay very much with literature and representations and documents that have come from within Islamic culture to look at what the Kaaba held before the Prophet returned in victory to Mecca. So he returns in victory in 630. It's the the conquest of Mecca. uh, um, And at that point, Mecca becomes an Islamic city, so to speak, and the Kaaba is emptied of the whatever it contained. Now, the literature on what it contains is not uniform, so I kind of pass that literature. I go through it to to look at what are the dominant strands of these different uh, uh, histories that have spoken of this event of the cleansing of the Kaaba, to try and find out what it held um, prior to the prophet's conquest in 630. But Without so if there's doubt about if there's confusion about what was inside it and what was around the Kaaba before six thirty, there's no doubt that after six thirty it doesn't hold anything. The sources are clear about that. If the sources discuss the cleansing of the Kaaba in six hundred and thirty, there may be confusion about what it contained. Did it contain a a goat's head? Did it contain a a dove? Did it contain hubal? Did it contain more idols? There there might be confusion about that, but there isn't confusion about the fact that after it's been cleansed, it doesn't contain anything. Um, And and it's that nothingness that I'm interested in because I argue, this is when I start moving into an interpretive mode, because I say that that nothingness is, uh, we can see that emptiness in uh, uh, uh in in a certain genre of representations of paintings of the Kaaba there is uh, uh, um there is uh, a, a a prayer book a very famous um prayer book by al-Jazuli a, a Moroccan uh, sufi who writes delightful which gets variously translated i translated as uh, the the uh, guidelines to blessings but its translation is often uh, is it, it often changes and um uh, in, the, in this manuscript, uh, which it gets copied very quickly and gets repeatedly copied, um, it's a very popular uh, book. And um, when it gets copied increasingly, especially from around the sixteenth century, and even more especially from the eighteenth century, we start finding paired diagrams of the Kaaba of, of Mecca and Medina, the Haramain, the two, the, the, you know, the two sacred precincts, and. I look at the way that in this particular prayer book, in the copies of it, how the Kaaba is routinely represented in a very particular way that is unusual, in my view, in comparison to other buildings um, other buildings in the same prayer manuscript, but indeed other representations of, say, the Dome of the Rock. So I make comparisons between how the Kaaba is represented in this prayer book vis-a-vis how it's represented, say, in guidebooks to uh, to, to Jerusalem. And I argue that it's represented in this, in this way because there is nothing in the Kaaba to represent. Um, and that then leads me to the final part of the chapter where I talk about um, the... Uh, uh, progress of of the number zero from India into uh, uh, Arabia in the seventh century, and you know, how we might think of z- how we might think of the nothingness within the Kaaba is actually being constitutive of the mystery of the Kaaba. After all, nothing is itself is is, is a mystical thing. It's a it's a source of mystery, but it's also a uh, the beginning point of numbers for example naught anchors the numbers one to ten one to nine i'm sorry uh naught in uh renaissance art history anchors the linear perspective uh from which we get the illusion of three-dimensional space on a two-dimensional surface naught Anchors um, um, monetary systems that are used in capitalism today. There is quite a lot of interesting writing about naught and zero by mathematicians, um, and I, my, I make reference to those and go out on a limb talking about this—the the, the nothing that the Kaaba contains. It's a kind of—it's a placeholder for nothing.
1: Um, that was a—that uh, was amazing. Thank you very much. Um, I think. It really, really drove the point home um, that you were making earlier about the uniqueness of the Kaaba uh, as world architecture. The comparisons, again, represented in plates throughout the book of uh, of different maps representing the Kaaba and and other supposedly comparable buildings, um, including uh, other Islamic buildings at, uh, at Medina and and so on. Great um, um, to on on on. On the note of emptiness, you talk about the kiswa. The kiswa is the uh, the by now yearly, if I'm not mistaken, change changed robe of the Kaaba. Um, yes. and you 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 explain how maybe it wasn't always yearly, or you, you talk about that, but you specifically talk about the role of the um, of the kiswa. In constituting the Kaaba as you call it as a dwelling um yes this is the final chapter of your book um could you tell us something about that
0: yes uh, so this chapter which i i i now look at how the Kaaba is imagined by certain communities shall we say certain demograph de, demo, certain demographers, certain demographic and anyway, everything it's imagined by certain groups of people and not and I need to be very careful what I'm saying here is i am not saying that it's imagined by the Ulema. i'm not saying it's imagined by the saudi king today but it, but i look at how the kaaba has been imagined by travellers by miniature painters in iran and by sufis how it's imagined to contain at, at a certain point of its of its of, of the of the islamic calendar it's imagined to be alive it's imagined to be a dwelling of something uh, superabundant Um, And this, I argue, is is, uh, signified in the way that the kiswa, the robe, is hung. The kiswa is not consistently uh, down to the ground. It is just before the Hajj season, it's it's elevated, a short, a a distance. It changes again. The travelers' accounts tell us the different ways that it is elevated, but it's elevated just before the Hajj commences, and it's wrapped and where it's elevated then a white white cloth is then wrapped around it and we know from at least uh from at least ibn Battuta's period and in fact even early we know from ibn Jubayr. Uh, so in the 12th century we know that when it's got this white robe around it an izar and izar is another word for the um uh costume that pilgrims have to wear that it's called it's it is said that the Kaaba is now in its ihram. It's now in its state of uh, in its state of taboo. It's it's gone into. It's wearing pilgrimage clothes. So when it gets wrapped with this white cloth, and and when the kiswa has been elevated, and then a white cloth is wrapped around it, it's said to be in a state of ihram. Then after, uh, then on the day of Arafat, and, uh, and uh, the the uh, so on day. Uh, is it day four of day four of the Hajj? The uh, the kiswa is replaced with a new kiswa, and um, it is lowered, but is not lowered completely down to the ground again. It is then hung in a different way uh, once again, and we've got uh, from Persian paintings, from miniature paintings from uh, from at least from Iran, and I, I separate them from off, it, from Ottoman. Miniature paintings where we don't see an interest in the kiswa, but in Persian paintings we get uh, a, 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 a sort of almost a sustained focus on the way that the kiswa is hung when it's been replaced with a new one. Um, and at this point, the literature we know from literature, travelers again, that uh, the Kaaba is referred to as a bride. So from, from from travel literature, we know that there is a period when it seems to either be a pilgrim or a bride, so it seems to be sort of a living thing, but it also it's also completely closed off during this period. You can't go into the Kaaba during this period. It's completely shut. And in these miniature paintings, which show the Kaaba in its bridal costume, at the same time as showing it in this way, the rest of the miniature painting is showing events that are cosmically inspired. Um, there are angels dancing. There are angels whirling around. Maybe it's a. Maybe the prophet is riding over it in, in, in passage to Jerusalem as part of the meharaj. Maybe, um, maybe the prophet is smashing some idols as as the end of, to, to mark the end of idolatry and the commencement of 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 tawhid and Islam i argue that these cosmic events and the fact that the uh, that the um that the, that the is dressed in the in this bridal gear and this elaborate costume su- is suggestive of a fact that the Kaaba, this that this moment is 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 an actor in the scene and it's alive it's almost as if it were itself animated by with a superabundant force um so the evidence for that to say just to make sure that our listeners aren't, or our listeners, your listeners aren't thinking this, you know, this person is just kind of, our. <laughs> uh, thank you, is, not, is, not, is just running wild with one or two ideas. The evidence is, uh, the evidence is all based either on miniature painting, on travelers' reports, on Sufi accounts, again, because they're the ones that are most attentive to encounters with the Kaaba. Um, and... Um, uh, and and lastly uh, uh european travelers who who traveled to Mecca in the nineteenth century they've also left us very careful accounts of the hanging of the kiswa uh, around the Hajj period, so I found them to be very valuable too um and yes and because the book is so nicely illustrated you know when I'm referring to this or that painting, the reader can look at it themselves without having to go on the internet, so you can see that um that there is that this is that this argument is evidence based sometimes the evidence is pictorial, which if you're a historian may not count so much but um, you, the reader will be able to see that this is not just kind of fancy not just whimsy um, because it is possible it's all too easy to write whimsically about the Kaaba Um it's, you know you can you can fantasize about it and i i don't think any any of our readers any of our listeners or any reader uh, any academic reader wants to read whimsy um on uh, when it comes to the, the kaaba um uh,
1: specifically about uh, uh readers and academic readers i think another thing that readers of your book will certainly appreciate i appreciated it very much um was the uh the lucid structure with which you organize each chapter, uh, um, uh, materializing the conclusions of each chapter at the end, your own personal conclusions, what you consider to be general, um, and then at the end of the conclusion again, uh, um, very clearly stating your position and in a, uh, in a condensed format. I found that very helpful. I found it was a... Um, uh, a very helpful device for uh, for an intellectual engagement with the book, and and uh, and I wanted to to commend you for that. Um, Thank you. Thank n- you. Right now, we're um, we're not looking to take much more of your time, um, but I wanted to ask you um, after this amazing book, uh, what are you working on? Is there some other book you're working on? Is there some projects? What's what's your horizon right now? Oh, th- thank you. Um, yes, I, I, I am. Uh, I am. I need
0: to be thinking about a new a new project, and it will again involve architecture. I, I have this kind of fascination with what architecture is and what it does, not just in Islamic culture, but in, in any culture. And I think, although I'm not absolutely sure yet, I think what I want to do for my next project is think about how. The Quran, how the Hadith, and and in a sense more broadly, how Islamic culture thinks in terms of architecture. I'm, you know, I'm interested in the way that we get Dar al Islam, Dar al sul We get this. We get when house imagery is used to divide the world. Um, The afterlife is called a house. This life is called a house. And so I'm, I'm going to, I think I'm going to be doing another. I'm going to be doing a project which isn't necessarily focused on a real object. Like the cupboard is a real object, but I'm going to be looking, and almost I'm going to be—it's going to be again quite conceptual—in that I want to see how architecture is being used in the Quran, how it's been used in the Hadith, in um, traditions, and so forth, to structure. Uh, ideas to structure thought, and indeed to structure this world and the world to come. Uh, as I say, the, the, this, the, the, the word house is a dominant a form of structuring. It's an architectural way of thinking, and I, you know, that's really my interest. My interest is architecture; it ha- has always been. And um, if there's if there's one thing that um, Islamic art and architecture excels at, in my view, it's architecture. I mean, you can see. Islamic architecture still today leaves me uh, in awe. Uh, um, not all of it, but it is it is a, a, a tremendous achievement within its within that within the material culture of the Islamic world, uh, and that's what I that's I think is where I'm going to be going. But it almost certainly won't be looking at uh, at a particular building. I want to look at how it structures, particularly this divide between the, the world, the what the Alam Shahada, the seen world, and the Alam Araib, the unseen world. Um, what that divide is, it's an architectural divide of some sort. Um, what gets secreted, what can't be seen in this world, what is pushed out of sight by the house. After all, a house holds and contains and puts out of sight, puts out of view. So you can see that I'm you know, in some sense, it'll be familiar uh to anyone who's read uh, a few of the chapters of the present book as a kind of similar uh, uh, way of engaging with architecture. Others will say not for me because it's too conceptual, I understand that. But um, that's where I think I'm, I'm going. I want to do something conceptual about housing and housing as a, as a way of organizing the uh,
1: uh, Islamic world. Um, I, I hope to be here to talk to you about that future book um thank you yeah, the um, the uh one thing i wanted to to note also was that edinburgh university press was kind enough to provide us with a um with a code for a 30 percent discount for if people want to buy your book that's podcast 30 that's podcast 30 so i wanted to leave that here um uh but apart from that i wanted to Thank you tremendously for your time and for the wonderful book you've added to the scholarship. Um, It was a real pleasure talking to you.
0: Uh, Miguel, the pleasure is entirely mine. Thank you very much and all all the very best with your studies. I hope our paths cross in person. Thank you for having me.
1: It's been a tremendous honour and pleasure. Thank you very much. My name is Miguel Montero and we were just uh, with the New Books Network in Middle Eastern Studies. Thank you very much.